0: Rockland World Radio. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to New York Update. This is Jake Jacobs. And tonight we're going to have a call-in from a congressional candidate running against Elliot Engel in the 16th District. His name is Endom, and I'm going to try to pronounce this right, Gorgias I don't know. I'm probably butchering that. I'm sure that they call him Mr. G. But he's going to be calling in, and he is one of two candidates challenging Congressman Elliot Engel in New York's 16th District. Uh, he'll be calling in shortly. So we do want to cover a couple of education headlines. Uh, yesterday we posted some news of a data breach, and this is uh, when students put their data into school systems. School systems often have these third parties, such as Pearson, that is handling their data. And what happened here is that it seems as though the contracts ended, and this, and then the data was breached. So this involves the Brighton District, Brockport District, Fairport, Pittsford, Spencerport, Victor, Webster, and West Irondequoit school districts. Apparently, Pearson failed to inform the victims, the school districts, as required. And it seems as though the fact that they were breached, the students' names, numbers, information, emails in some cases were obtained by hackers was because they uh, were holding on to the data illegally after the contract expired. Another quick one. This was posted on August 16th is about arming teachers, uh, which I'm dead set against. It says officials horrified after first graders get a hold of a gun meant to protect the school. This happened in an Ohio elementary school. Where first graders uh, got a hold of a gun that was left unattended when a staffer went to the bathroom. So I can't imagine the horror of the parents and everybody involved. You know, this is just the kind of stories that we're going to be hearing if they do start arming teachers. You know, maybe you want to arm air marshals. Uh, maybe you want to arm security guards in schools. Maybe you want to arm like you know certain people that that's their main job is to provide security. But teachers have a lot on their plate. And if there's 30 kids in a classroom, like a high school class, sometimes there's 40 kids in a high school class. If they know the teacher is armed, they can bum rush the teacher and take the gun. I mean, it only takes two or three kids to do that. So terrible idea. This is an article in the New York Times that we are going to discuss next week when we have a little more time. Uh, Eliza Shapiro, who is the Times education reporter, has been covering the charter school issue for six years and spoke at length. It was actually a 42-minute Audio interview, and it was different. You know, there was a there's a lot of moves being made behind the scenes as the charter industry in New York is r- publicly recognizing and acknowledging some of the criticisms against them, such as uh, cherry picking, harsh discipline, and testing obsession. So we are going to dig into that next week because it's a little bit of a longer subject. Okay. Last week, I attended a county Democratic committee meeting and a congressional candidate who's running in the 17th district against Congresswoman Nita Lowey was doing a Q&A for the the local voters. His name is Mondaire Jones. Uh, He's running against Nita Lowey. And my question, of course, uh, was what is your stance on charter schools and do you support the NAACP moratorium on charter schools? And Mondaire said that he does support the NAACP moratorium on charter schools. Now, Nita Lowy had a representative there in the audience, and he did try to defend Nita Lowy uh, to the crowd and some of her positions, although he did was not able to answer her position on charter schools. He did take my information and I did forward him an email that I had sent to Nita Lowey's office asking her position on charter schools for an article. I never got a response and he said that he was going to expedite it so that I got a response and I still haven't gotten the response and so that was six days ago. So we are still waiting to get the position on the NAACP moratorium from Nita Lowey. We are still waiting on the position from Elliot Engel. And we have also requested the position from Carolyn Maloney. So we have a field of congressional candidate challengers, that some of whom support the NAACP moratorium on charter school. And we're going to be talking in a few minutes to Dom G and find out uh, where he stands. So we, we just want to get everybody on the record and get their statements and document how they feel. That's all. So that, so that the voter is informed and they know where everybody is because for some people like teachers and parents school privatization is a big issue for a lot of people it's just one of many issues on the plate but this is what i cover for the progressive and in the education space the high stakes testing the charter schools the yeshiva issue school funding etc governor cuomo signed a bill into law that gives new protections for New York students against bullying, harassment, or discrimination. And this was a bill that was championed by the LGBT community. New York State had an anti-discrimination law on the books, but there was a carve-out for public school children. And Andrew Cuomo, the governor, signed the measure into law. It was a bill that was brought up by State Senator Brad Hoylman, And uh, public school students had been exempted from the law ever since the 2012 court decision. Now, my guess is that that is because some of these things could end up in arrests or or, uh, pressing charges. Some of these things could end up in litigation. And it seemed like the court at at that time did not want to embroil the public school system. (coughs) Yeah. In the matter, so oh, this is our this is our call. So we're going to welcome Andom <phone rings> in a second. Hello. Hey, Jake. How are you doing? Good. Hi, Andom. So we are live on the air, and the first thing I want to do is so that I don't butcher your last name. Let me. Um, I was just taking a guess, but your students call you Mr. G, don't they? Uh, mixed. Mixed. Okay. So so tell us how to pronounce your last name, please, because I'm not get. I don't think I'm getting it right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's pronounced
0: Gebra Giorgis. Gebra Giorgis. Oh, that's not yeah. so hard. All yeah, right.
1: Students when I first started teaching, um the students they said, "Oh, we're just going to call you Mr. G." And I was like, "Oh, you can you can call me that, but I may not reply to you. Right. Um, I set the rules here." Um so yeah, they they called me Mr. Gebra Giorgis, but then over time some of them would switch to Mr. G.
0: Right. I mean, I guess once you get used to it, but for newcomers, I mean, it's like a uh, everybody had to get the uh, the trick to it, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. Once you get the trick to it, then we can start messing around a little. bit.
0: <laughs> right. Well. Okay. Well, welcome to New York Update. Um, happy to have you here. We do yeah, want to try. Here. We do want to try and uh, jump right in so we have as much time as possible to have a discussion about some of the issues. And Great. if if you could, why don't you start with a little bit about your unique background?
1: Definitely. Definitely. Um, I am. Uh, first-generation American. My parents immigrated from Eritrea, which is in East Africa. Um, At the time, it was part of Ethiopia, but Mm -hmm. the history is actually pretty interesting. They um, fought uh, independence war uh, in Eritrea from about, you know, the early 60s until 1991. Um, When I was in elementary school, Eritrea became independent uh, from Ethiopia, and it's one of you know, it's 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 one of the only countries that received their independence uh, within Africa from another African country, and not uh, a European colonizer. So, you know, it's a it was a pretty fascinating history. Um, I was, as a kid, really just surrounded by um, conversations around revolution and independence, and what does liberation really look like? And you know, there were always political conversations happening around me at a young age. But, you know, still, I was, I was very much a kid. I grew up in Mount Vernon. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, yeah, Mount Vernon was a great place to grow up. I went to an integrated public school uh, from kindergarten through sixth grade. And Mount Vernon elementary schools at the time were really, 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 really good. Um, and I had the great fortune of having wonderful teachers and going to a wonderful school during elementary school. But even, even as a young kid, uh, 11, 12 years old, I knew that Mount Vernon's middle and high schools, uh, you know, paled in comparison to the elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that I did not want to enter a middle school and have to, you know, go in there fighting and try to assert my dominance in a, you know, in what, in what are, unfortunately, the, the sad reality of many uh, public schools. Um, dog, and my parents yeah. were looking around for where to send me. We looked... In some parts of Westchester, um, you know, just traveling around in those parts, uh, more the more northern parts, like Hartsdale, Edgemont, it just didn't feel like a right fit for me at the time, mm-hmm. um, especially since I had gone to diverse schools my entire life. Right. Um, and when I say diverse, I don't mean diverse where it's like all people of color. I mean, literally, it was 25, 30% of everything you can imagine.
0: Um,
1: and... And, you know, a teacher ends up letting us, letting us know about Fieldson, a private school in Riverdale, which, you know, they said was a really excellent school. And it, it was a really excellent school. Um, but I think some of the issues with uh, diversity that I was fearful of um, with some of the other public schools in Westchester that I had been looking at, um, you know, unfortunately those same fears were, were replicated in Fieldson. But, but yeah, you know, I went to Fieldson. I had a, by and large, a, a pretty good experience there, even though it was very much Polar opposite of what schooling in Mount Vernon was. Yeah. I then went to Yale, and I majored in political science and economics. Mm. And you know, we had the great fortune then of meeting as uh, educators in the Bronx.
0: Oh, right. We got to talk about that a little. Um, <laughs> right. So uh, when I was teaching in a school, it's actually called the Richard Green Campus. Um, it was a, a, a big old school building um, in the Gun Hill area of the Bronx. And I was in one school on one floor, and you were teaching on another school another floor. We used to kind of see each other at, at like a Friday basketball game after school sometimes, right?
1: Exactly. We, we needed to de-stress on those Fridays, right? Let
0: it all out. Right. And it was really nice that the teachers from different schools within the building got to know each other and talk because... There were sometimes interactions which were pretty important about students going on the wrong floor or in my case I had a student from diplomacy one of the one of the schools in the building who was really interested in art and he wanted to go to an art high school and i got him prepared for the art high school even though he didn't even attend my school
1: oh wow i never (laughs) even knew that that's amazing
0: (laughs) yeah yeah so and he ended up going to millennium art academy so uh right i left that school i'm in a different school now i'm i think i'm in my fifth school um how about yourself so you be so you become a new york city public school teacher and then and then bring us through the rest of the story
1: yeah so um, I was a New York City teaching fellow I was very fortunate and blessed to be um, placed within the special education program you know I can talk about that a little bit later but I'm just very very fortunate for having been uh, trained in special education pedagogy and you know just having that that experience at City College I found a job with the School of Diplomacy at the Richard Green Campus MS 113 and I taught there for three years As a special education teacher, it was really interesting. My first year, when uh, New York City Teaching Fellows, my instructors would come and visit me, you know, because as a first year teacher, you're assigned a mentor and whatnot in your graduate program. And as soon as they came to visit me, they said, "Andam, you you need to leave this school." You know, I was I was sort of caught off guard. Part of it was a bit validating, just because I had. I had almost sort of internalized this uh, idea and understanding that my school was really a, a hot mess and no one could understand me. Is it me? Is it my school? What's going on? I'm a first-year teacher, and I'm dealing with so many new things, and uh, they're so challenging. But you know, my, my mentor actually told me that you know, there were some administrative issues at the school that they felt um, were going to make it very difficult for me to succeed, and she really encouraged me um, to leave the school. And that felt totally wrong to me. Right. Um, you know, I did not want to be... I, there were already multiple teachers who quit in the middle of the year, which really was a strain on the rest of us teachers. But, you know, not only did I not want to be another teacher who left, I was one of the few male teachers, particularly one of the f- I, I, one of the only black male teachers. And I did not want to be another, you know, man or black man who walked out on, on my kids. Right. And so I, I stayed. I stayed at the school. I actually stayed there for... Three years, and I waited for my students to complete uh, a loop and graduate. So my students who I started with in sixth grade, mm-hmm. I stayed with them until they graduated through eighth grade. Right. But I knew that long term I couldn't stay at that school just because there were too many too many administrative issues that made me feel like I was just a cog a cog in this you know bureaucratic school to prison pipeline. Um, and even though you know we were able to achieve a lot of amazing academic social gains um, with the students. Uh, it's it's still something that makes it very difficult, which I'm sure, you know, I, I'm sure you've experienced plenty of times having been at, at, at five different schools.
0: Yeah. Um, the school I was in in the same building was on the so-called list, you know, those, the closure list or whatever yep. they want to call it, whatever they call it nowadays. And I think um, after we left, I think both of our schools merged and became one school because they were part of that citywide turnaround school program where they got more resources and they really got, you know, a lot of focused attention and I think that school is still there. I have some friends there that are, that still remained. And it's much better now. But, yeah, it was a hot mess. My school was. The whole building was. And, you know, it just goes to show that when they took the big buildings and they split them up into all these tiny little schools, one on every floor, you lose a lot. You know, like you could lose, like, a, a whole music program. You could lose... Um, access to the library. There's yep. more administrators in the building now and less teachers in the building now. So there's a lot of things that come with that. And, and you know, I was only in my, I think, fourth year at that point, or, or maybe third when I started there. So we, yeah, we were thrust into these tough situations. And the students were really, really rowdy, unless the teacher was there, you know, it was on top of their game and really able to get them engaged and get them working. So I experienced yeah, that too.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think that Really speaks to the administrative issues that we saw on the campus. Um, you know, we could have done whatever we thought was necessary within our classroom to ensure that you know st- the students were on task and exhibiting you know productive behaviors that would lead to to their success. But as soon as they step into the hallway, it's just chaos and, and disorder. And so you know, you f- have actually a, a limited amount that you can do outside of your classroom to be able to control that because who's really um, assuring that that those spaces um, are conducive towards learning and safety, um, you know, I, I think around the time because I, I was there from 2009 to 2012, you, around that time there was a lot a huge push to get, and I, I still think there is, uh, a, a, you know, at this time as well. Um, but there was a huge push to get new people from non traditional backgrounds into administration. Um, you know, people who either had only taught for a couple of years or who are coming from Business backgrounds, and, and I think that you know there, there there can be some benefit to that in the right hit circu- or miss. with the right circumstances in the right setting. Yeah. Um, but I think that our school is an example of, or our campus was an example of, of you know how you can see that actually failing at certain times.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a hit or miss. I mean, it isn't to say that some of those principals won't uh, go on to do well, but we had one also from the Leadership Academy and. They had only taught maybe four years in a classroom before they'd become a principal and get handed a really high need school what could go wrong yeah so but
1: you know it actually it actually really served as an important reminder to me of just how amazing our staff was how the teachers and the social workers and how in a school that had you know serious needs and sometimes the administrative responsibilities weren't always met you know you were able to find partnerships and the ability to collaborate productively with Teachers and whether that be assisting students, you know, during the day, assisting students who don't even go to your school with an art portfolio project, right. or us just coming together to de-stress on a Friday. I found that the staff really made the school. If it weren't for the staff, it would have been really difficult to manage. You know, teaching at a school like that for so many years.
0: Yeah. I, oh, agreed. We, I saw that on my staff too, and I learned a lot. Uh, in that school about maybe, uh, you know, speaking up at meetings, um, you know, pushing back a little bit when the administration was not doing the right thing. So, I mean, you know, those, when you're a teacher, you know, those first early years are very formative and very valuable in being able to get better and being able to understand how successful teachers operate. So, I'm I'm sure we kind of went through that.
1: I I couldn't agree more. I'm actually thankful that I was place in, in such an environment because it really made me a better teacher. It forced me to uh, adapt immediately um, and I learned invaluable lessons uh, not only from the other staff or, but from my students as well, many of whom who I still um, you know, remain in contact with. Right. So um, yeah, take, but, us,
0: take us through what happened after, I mean, yeah. what, where you're teaching now and so forth.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I knew my last year, 2012 at the school, once my students were going to graduate, I said that, you know, I need to look for Another placement because this is not something that's sustainable for me, um, and I decided to. At this point, I was living uh, in Inwood. I was living in Dyckman Street with my um, ex girlfriend, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Okay, I'll look. I'll look uh, in in Manhattan. I'll also look in the Bronx, and we'll see what we find." Um, and I had happened to apply to the school called the Equity Project on a whim mm-hmm. because there were some things that that seemed pretty interesting to me. Um, you know, this is a charter school, and I, I, as a as an educator I, and as a, a public special education teacher, um, you know, I had obviously serious reservations and issues with the charter school movement. But this school really intrigued me because there were they did ha, they had two things about them about the school that um, I thought were really great. One thing was that they uh, recognized the utility of paying teachers what they're worth. Um, every teacher had a salary of one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Right and then the second thing was that they had a restorative justice model Mm. so you know having been at the ms-113 campus where we had two social workers for 450 students and you know you could really see how um... the lack of uh, supportive services in the school how it affected the kids to be able to see a school that had a dedicated social worker for each grade where those social workers were looping with the students just like i would be as a special education teacher and also to see a school that had a no expulsion policy, um, no out of school suspensions. All school suspensions were done in house, um, and it was done on a, a relational discipline and a restorative justice model. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, really intriguing. And it was also in the same area which, in which I lived. So um, I always liked. You know a lot of teachers hate teaching uh, in the same area as their kids, right. but I actually really like it um, you know when i was I'm from Mount Vernon, so when I used to teach at um, diplomacy, I was basically in the same neighborhood you know I could reference things that the kids would understand and and you know they can see themselves in me right uh, and I, I liked that aspect as well about uh, the equity project because it was about you know proximity also was amazing, but it, I liked being in the community and so I you know, the application process was extremely, extremely uh, rigorous and detailed, and it took a long time. Um, but I was able to uh, secure a position there, and I decided to accept it. And I, I had an amazing uh, time teaching at the Equity Project. It was a school which challenged me in different ways than at School of Diplomacy. Um, at the Equity Project, the administration was very, very much on it, organized. Um, there were clear and consistent protocols that were defined by them in conjunction with the staff, and those protocols were consistent across all grade levels. And it was, it, you know, it was just a very different experience teaching in that sort of environment. And then also because, you know, I was able to focus on academics and teaching curricular. Uh, content in a different way than at diplomacy, because at diplomacy there were so many behavioral issues that came right. with, yeah. with with a school like environment. Yeah, I mean like that.
0: it's it's like night and day. You're doing I think maybe a tenth of the behavior management uh, as the other school, or you know maybe even less. It depends. Uh, you know exactly.
1: I mean, yeah, you know at at MS at MS one thirteen, you know there'd be maybe one student who walks out of my class. And no one is monitoring the halls. There's nothing that can be done. Right. And you know, I can't go out because I have my, uh, you know, I was a twelve to one to one teacher, so I have my 11, 12 students in the classroom. And that student's just going to be literally walking the halls for the whole day. Um, you know, that would be something that would have never happened at at my own individuals at the Equity Project. Right. Um, it was very, very. Um, it was just a totally different environment, and the protocols were very, very clear. And you know, you really see the benefits of what happens when you have a dedicated. Special education teacher and social worker for every grade. I still have relationships with my students, even though I haven't taught some of them since 2015 when they graduated. You know, these are students who are are working with me on the campaign. You know, they're volunteering, they're they're canvassing. Um, you know, they're doing some administrative and clerical work uh, online. And yeah, it, it was it was just an amazing an amazing experience to be able to teach um, in an environment where I really felt that everyone involved was. Supporting the students uh, on the right path. I obviously feel that we had. I was able to make positive gains with my students at the School of Diplomacy as well. um, But it's just a very different, very different type of atmosphere.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I have a a colleague that I work with at one of my schools who just took a job at a charter school as a social worker, and he's you know he's shooting me texts all day now you know through the trainings, and he's telling me like it's the polar opposite of the, the public school that he came from, you know, mm-hmm. high-needs kids and a lot of, you know, social-emotional coaching and behavior management and there. The focus is on academics, or maybe it, I want to say the focus is on standardized test scores. So mm-hmm. let me ask you your experience, because I know TEP is, is looked at a little bit differently. I think it's a one-off, correct? It's, it's only the one location?
1: Yeah, they they actually just opened up uh, an elementary school. Okay. But, you know, in my conversations with them, it, you know, they're not – they don't have any aspirations of forming a network. Right. And I think – and this was a, a question I actually – I remember asking upon when I was uh, interviewing. I was like, you know, is this something that you're trying to prove a – prove the point of a model and then, you know, have it go back into – public education, or are you guys trying to start your own network and, and do X, Y, and Z? And, you know, they said it was the former. They're trying to show that teacher pay and teacher quality leads to yeah. um, outcomes for students. But, yeah, I but saw, yeah, you know, what I you're saying is something that I I definitely saw that the emphasis and focus on high-stakes testing, I think is, you know, it's, it's a huge problem across all charters. If I can only speak to my own experience. You know, at TEP, I was granted a... a Good degree of autonomy as a teacher which I really liked mm-hmm. um, and so while we did have you know while we all students took the state exam and you know we had periodic assessments to, to see how they were performing and how they were projected to perform on the state exam within that I was able to teach whatever whatever I wanted yeah. so it was you know it wasn't something that was
0: Drilling too kill on of, day one. too much of
1: a burden for me right. um, because it would have been something that I would have faced at at any school at, least at school at least a school that's not an opt-out school uh-huh. because you know they're taking the test but I didn't have to myself teach to the test I could teach whatever I wanted
0: right so you're saying that TEP is not obsessed with testing from day one it's not a drilling and kill and hypnotize the kids type of a model
1: well I haven't been there for a couple of years now right so I don't I, I can only speak to when I was there oh, okay. I left at I left as a full-time teacher in 2016, and then had, was doing part-time stuff with them over the last couple of years, okay. while also doing some ch- uh, young adult writing. Uh-huh. Um, like I just had a book that came out. Uh, what is it now? Two weeks two three weeks ago on August first for young adult readers, emergent readers. Okay. Um, so I've been involved in education, not as a full-time educator, but as a as a YA writer and doing some part-time teaching. So I can't speak to TP now, right. um, but I can speak as of as late as of two. 2016 I was granted a a large degree of autonomy Um, and you know like my students did really well on the on the test like you know but that wasn't the measure that I was necessarily looking at for seeing how my students grew TEP may have been looking at it, and they wanted to see a certain amount of growth,
0: Um,
1: but I was able to judge my students on my own measures uh, and my own assessments within the classroom.
0: I'm sure for the authorizer, uh, and I I don't know if you know who the authorizer was, whether it was SUNY or whether it was the Board of Regents or somebody else, but I'm sure that the authorizer was looking at the test scores because that's that's the be-all end-all for the authorizer, but um, as you know, as a, as a real teacher, it's not the be-all, end-all in the actual classroom. It is, there, there is Especially some... Especially
1: as a special education teacher. I can, you know, yeah. I, sorry to interject, but no, go ahead.
0: yeah. Since we're here on this, so charter schools and standardized testing, I mean, you know, they're very they're very linked together um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So as a prospective congressman, this and this is the same question I ask everybody, would you support the NAACP moratorium on charter schools, or would you allow, you know, space for charter schools to continue doing what they're doing. Yeah, no,
1: I mean, uh, while I had a wonderful experience at my charter, my own individual charter school, it doesn't change the policies and the ideology I have with respect to public education and also how I've seen and how we've all seen um, charter schools performing um, over the last 10 years. I 100% um, support the moratorium and, and say that, you know, and we talk about this in our platform a bit, but you know, charter schools need to be subject to the same transparency and, and accountability as public schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a report that came out in Forbes maybe in March talking about how we've seen uh, charter school waste about close to a, a, a billion dollars of taxpayer money.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, the, yeah, that's and, the uh, NPE report, right?
1: Yeah, right. And these these are, are public funds that are not only being wasted in charter schools, they're being diverted from Public schools, and it's just a very you know when when you're talking with school choice and charter advocates, it's just a very very odd conversation because it's you know their reasoning for why charter schools and and school choice is is necessary is because public schools are, are failing, and so their solution to that is to. Divert more money away from that which they believe is failing. So it's just like a really odd argument that <laughs> that you hear from them sometimes.
0: It's ridiculous.
1: Um, but yeah, I hundred percent support uh, the charter school morato- the charter school moratorium okay. um, that was put forth by the NAACP. You know, I think in I think in many ways New York is not as actually bad as some other states. You know, where you see you know Florida, Michigan, Louisiana. Um, but the overall, you know, especially when it comes to D- testing and discipline, you know, there's a lot of issues that we that we see at charter schools that, um, you know, make it so much so that a moratorium is necessary.
0: Right, okay. And on the question of standardized testing, you know, a lot of people don't know what that would translate to, you know, for a congressman, but there would have to be uh, a bill to uh, reconsider or revisit the uh, ESSA law, Every Student Succeeds Act, Mm -hmm. in which they would open up amendments and negotiation. And so the public education movement um, is supporting a prospective resolution to repeal the federal mandate for standardized testing so that it would be left to each state whether or not they wanted to have a law on the books in the state or it would be left to each district whether they want to have some kind of district-wide policy. But where would you stand if you were elected, let's say, on the question of the federal mandate for standardized testing? Would you con- uh, continue it, or would you try to repeal it?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the, the benefits that I'm able to put forward in throughout this race, and as someone who's running for, for Congress, is, as a special education teacher, I can really speak to the need for individualizing education um, and the importance of, you know, seeing the unique qualities and multiple intelligences that are present in a classroom within each student. And that's something that's totally lost with standardized testing and particularly with high-stakes testing mm-hmm. um, when we're looking at this sole measure as what, how we're going to judge students' performance throughout the year, uh, educators' effectiveness throughout the year, um, and the overall quality of a school. And so we just lose so much when we use high-stakes testing in that way. Um, I think that, obviously, as, as a teacher, assessments have a necess- you know, are necessary role in education. But the question is the amount of influence that we've given. You know, we see it as, as public school teachers. We've seen it. You know, like a, a kid could do basically... You know nothing all year in the sense of their classwork, their homework, their coursework throughout the year. Maybe they meet that minimum threshold of attendance, but if they get a two on the state exam, then they're they're moving on to the next grade.
0: Right, um, Te- testing, it, it, testing it, out of the grade they call it, or or else. Uh, it's testing out of the grade, and they used used to also hold a kid over if they couldn't get a two, uh, although that's not the case now. Some schools and some principals still will threaten kids with that as if it was still the law to try to get them invested in in taking the test and, you know, basically learning to the test all year long. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. The, it, it really distorts what's possible in a classroom because... It narrows everything down to math and ELA, only two subjects. You know, you imagine, like, a kid whose whole life is, like, science, and, you know, it it isn't valued the same, right? Um, And
1: and that's why we see so many students who are graduating from charter high schools. You know, when they go to college, they're saying that they don't, they haven't been prepared adequately. You know, you're seeing dropout rates um, that are way, way, way above, you know, students who are coming from public schools or, um, you know, school settings where maybe there's not as much of a focus on standardized testing and therefore just solely that drill and kill math and ELA. You know, you need to be able to develop critical thinking, logical reasoning, and also have an appreciation for the different types of subjects that, you know, we should be learning in school. You know, when I, at, at MS-113, we, didn't, we had science and social studies, I think, two days a week.
0: Yeah, it really everything got pushed to the side. Gym, art, I mean, you know, yeah. and and sometimes they even just cut programs, you know, when the hey. when the when the focus became the standardized testing, we had kids that would have a double period of math, we you know, and it's like they saw it as torture, you know. Yeah.
1: And you know, it really just goes to show you that you you're having people who are developing policy that um are not steeped in education. Um, They're not steeped in understanding neuroscience and and cognitive development because when you're actually educating the whole, all of the child and tapping into all of their intelligences, you know, they're at this point more able to critically think through something and remember content. And so if we're only teaching them English and math, okay, like, yeah, you might have some students who are going to improve in English and math but when we're doing and when we're teaching students in an interdisciplinary cross-curricular way and they're seeing, you know, that the math concept in gym, in social studies, in science and you know and then they're bringing it back to their math class where well, they're going to really generalize that skill across different content areas and begin to understand how it applies outside of their classroom and that's how. That's where real learning happens. That's where learning for the 21st century is going to happen. And we're really not, for, you know, we weren't preparing students uh, for the, for jobs and, and college and career readiness before, uh, and we're definitely not doing it now.
0: Right. And there's there's also that difference about just regurgitating the the correct answer from within a text. You know, just finding the answer that that suits the question instead of being able to talk about your own opinion and being able to you know, make comparisons to the text and your own life. I mean, all of that stuff is discouraged. So it's really nice to hear a real teacher, experienced teacher, you know, weighing in on this. And, you know, I think we definitely need more educators going to Congress. I'll say that. So thanks for that. I really agree with your views on education. But let me give you some time to talk about your other priorities, because I know there's got to be a lot more to a campaign. Why don't you give us, I mean, maybe just your top three, but uh, what are you basing your campaign on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think within the the left and within the Democratic Party, um, you know, we need to take back some values that um, have been co-opted and hijacked by Republicans. And I think when we're thinking about ideas of freedom and justice, that's really the the values that my campaign is centered around, freedom, justice, equality, and human rights. And I think when we're thinking about freedom, um, a, a lot of times we think about freedom in the sense of, you know the Constitution or or the Bill of Rights, um, but we don't always think about freedom in terms of what we're able or not able to do because of the socioeconomic conditions um, that we're faced with and the institutional barriers that limit us. And you know we've seen over the last 30 years wages stagnate, income inequality widen, and you know this is this is extremely clear in District 16, which is. You know, in a good way, very racially and socioeconomically diverse, but also at the same time unbelievably unequal. Um, you can see it just by looking from Mount Vernon to Bronxville, where in Mount Vernon the median income is the same amount as the median uh, tax tax income, <laughs> the median uh, tax on households in Bronxville. Really? So our median income is fifty thousand. That's the median wow. uh, tax on households in Bronxville. Right. And, you know, you can see it in the Bronx. You look where we taught uh, in the Northeast Bronx. You go to the Northwest Bronx and Riverdale, it's a very different world. And so I think freedom is really important, and we're going to have freedom when we implement policies that are going to allow Americans to work in the jobs that, the jobs that they want. They're going to w- allow them to live their life without worrying about whether they can pay for their health care visit or their prescription drug costs or whether they're going to worry about if the planet is going to explode, um, you know, for when, when their grandchildren are their age. Uh, and I think that, you know, there are certain po- policies that we need to center. Medicare for all, uh, Green New Deal, federal job guarantee, um, all the while securing the rights for uh, workers, people of color, women, um, and the LGBT community. And, you know, that's something that we're going to be able to do uh, investing in these ambitious social programs that we need in our community um, by divesting from uh, the, for- the forever wars that we've been involved in throughout all of my students' lives. And so that's really the platform that we have. It's a (laughs) divest-invest platform um, that really is about centering freedom um, and justice for um, working-class Americans.
0: Right. And so for people that might not be aware, the 16th District, you know, it includes, I won't list every locality, but it's like, you know, from Yonkers all the way across to Mount Vernon, and then you go up Mimarinick and Larchmont, and then you hit, like, uh, Scarsdale and Hastings, right, yep. and so while it might be diverse on paper, it's it's segregated. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's very economically segregated, and so it is a very interesting district in that way. And so, you know, there's very different needs, you know, within the district. I I guess, you know, you would say the low-income areas in the Bronx or maybe, you know, Mount Vernon would have different needs than some of the suburban districts. So tell us your view on the race. Elliot Engel has been in that seat for 30 years. He has a he has kind of a mixed record. I think he's more of a moderate, people would agree, opposed to a, a true progressive. He hasn't really weighed in on education at all other than his vote for no child left behind back in 2001 and the usual kind of like safe platitudes. So uh, what is your comment on Elliot Engel and, you know, your prospects for this race?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting to think that Elliot Engel has been in office for All the four years of my life, Um, and you know, over 34 years, we've seen America go through a lot of changes. I think that there's, you know, there's definitely uh, Elliot has Elliot Engel has a strong base here in Westchester in the Bronx, but at the same time, he's also been able to stay in power by having low turnout throughout the district. We've seen in the last election, um, less than 10 percent of people came out um, to to vote. And, you know, this is something that we see across the country in general, but particularly, um, this is particularly acute in District 16, where it was about 9.5%. And so, you know, that's indicative of the fact that there's an opportunity to tap into people who have been historically ex- excluded, electorally left out of the fold. And so it's our job to mobilize people and let them know that, you know, the issues that we're talking about here in District 16 are important, not only important locally, but are important throughout the country. And so what we're going to be doing is talking about how Elliot Engel has not met the needs and values and priorities of the district. And I think the clearest it is evident is in his foreign policy. And, you know, here in Westchester, one of the great things that we've been able to see, and in the Bronx as well, is how much the Democratic uh, people who are part of the left the Democratic Party and, you know, other, you know, the Green Party, Working Families Party, how they've all come together and coalesced in the face of Trump's xenophobic immigration policies. You know, we've seen organizations like Jews Against ICE and Progressive Women yeah. of Pelham, and all of them have stood up to, you know, some of the most horrific uh, raids that ICE has propagated in the district. And, you know, Elliot Engel has voted to fund ICE through the National Defense NDAA. Yeah, and, under- you know, he's okayed about $8 billion in funding uh, to ICE and to the CBP. And, you know, this is not something that I would be doing. This is not something that I would be doing, not only for ICE and the CBP, but for a military-industrial complex which sucks out resources from communities which we know are underserved because we teach in them. And, you know, I think that's something that's going to resonate throughout the district because people understand the inequality. They understand that the inequality and social stratification is something that's tearing at the heart of America and it's not going to be sustainable, particularly on the left when we have serious, you know, people to deal with on the right. We need to fix these problems. We need to be strong in our progressive values and we can't waver on issues which are going to hurt us in the long run. So I think people are going to be able to understand that, you know, someone who's continuously voted for wars which have not made America safer, and doing that, while they could be actually investing in resources, which are going to help people here, I think people will see and it will be clear to them uh, what they need to do.
0: So I guess it's safe to say you would have voted, you would have voted no on the, on the last defense appropriation. I mean, I don't think that the 16th District really has any military locations. I don't know. But we're, we, we do have a lot of schools. I know that. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. Right. And so uh, you feel like it was one of those bills that they just passed reflexively and that he should have uh, taken the opportunity to make a statement about the immigration policy.
1: I mean, we need to be taking a strong stance against militarization abroad and militarization at home. And that is something that can be done through how we're legislating and how we're voting. And it can also be done by standing in solidarity with people who are fighting against the xenophobia that is being put forth uh, by the president and the right wing. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, we we all should be agreeing that ICE and the CBP, which are housed in the Department of Homeland Security in this sort of post-9-11 framework, um, we shouldn't be doing immigration that way. You know, we should not be considering immigration from the same framework that we consider terrorism. These are two very, very different processes, and I would not be voting for anything that puts the two of them together.
0: Right. I mean, uh, this this is a product of the combined Department of Homeland Security after 9/11, where they reshuffled everything and they were able to create a new organizational framework that you know made these guys kind of like a law enforcement uh, brigade, and they're literally rounding people up. I mean, this is this is happening. We used to talk about this like as a threat, and now we're actually seeing it. The uh, raid in Alabama at the uh, chicken processing plant was 600 people all at once. You know. It's yeah. really alarming, and it would be really disruptive if that happened here. I mean, I'm sure my students, you know, would be caught up right in the middle of it. Some kids were born here, some kids not, So, you know, but the parents weren't, and then just really complicating these families and adding this specter of, you know, stress and worry that you don't need in healthy kids that are trying to go to school.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah 100%. And, and, and just all of that focus, and misplaced, hateful focus, you know, could be devoted towards things that we actually need. And there are a lot of needs that we have, but we're not focusing on those needs because we have to deal with the real threat of, you know, ice tearing up our communities. So it, it, it is impacting us negatively in multiple ways. We have to deal with the reality that we're facing, but there's also this hidden opportunity cost because of focusing on with ICE and all the money that's going to ICE, you know, mm-hmm. that's money that's not going somewhere else that could be useful and beneficial
0: to us. Right, and and there was our opportunity to take a stand. Not only Elliot Engel, but a lot of the New York delegation. Nita Lowy is actually the chair of the Appropriations Committee, mm-hmm. and sh- you know, and everything just flowed right through, just like previous years. So yeah,
1: it's not it, you know, it, and look, you know, there there were massive deportations under Obama as well. You know, this is an apparatus that has been built over a long period of time, but we can't take this as business as usual, you know? Um, and so for people who, like Lowy, like Engel, for people who have been in Congress for throughout this entire time, you, you have to be held accountable. You have to be account- held accountable for the mistakes you made in the early 2000s as this was, you know, first being developed and implemented. Right. We especially have to make, be held accountable for what's happening right now because, you know, we've never seen it uh, at its level.
0: Right, and you know this also goes to the uh, detention centers, the the for profit detention mm-hmm. centers that you know that were built, and then they say, "Well, if we can uh, get if we can get this thing filled up with people, we can build another one." Yeah. So uh, there's that. I mean, and that kind of connects to the private prisons, you know, which can kind of connects to the criminal reform issues. Now we heard uh, two big platform policy announcements. One from Bernie. And then a day or two later, uh, Elizabeth Warren, what do you want to say about criminal justice reform?
1: Yeah, you know, as an educator and as a special educator, this is something near and dear to my heart because we physically are able to see the school-to-prison pipeline happen in front of our eyes. I haven't had a chance yet to read platforms of Warren or Sanders, but I have some, some familiarity with um, what Sanders has said in the past. And, you know, I I'm, I'm very much agree with Sanders on the issue of criminal justice reform and how really this is something that needs to be looked at all across the board, from policing, from pre-conviction to looking at how what's happening in prisons and then what's happening with people after they're released from prison. Right. I think that we need to maintain a decarceral program, and what that means is we need to be ensuring that we've been seeing for a long time, right, crime has been declining. Yet, why are we constantly talking about building more prisons here in New York, right? There's the Close Rikers campaign and No New Jails campaign Mm -hmm. um, that we've been seeing happening. So, you know, we need to ensure that no new jails are being built Mm -hmm. and people who have been imprisoned for crimes of poverty, marijuana offenses, Mm -hmm. they need to be immediately released, um, their records expunged, and they need to be provided resources and training to be able to live effectively outside of prison. Right, And so, you know, again, we have a, a decarceral program that's looking at ending cash bail, ending pretrial detention, ending mandatory minimums, uh, ending civil asset forfeiture, and, you know, making sure that we legalize marijuana. We want to ensure that there is no criminalization of poverty and pe- uh, petty offenses. Mm-hmm. And then we also want to ensure that anything that comes from marijuana legalization is invested back in communities that have been the hardest hit. And that we're also providing resources to those people who were formerly incarcerated.
0: Right. I think that might have been, that last piece might have been the stumbling block for legalization on the state level here in New York because it ended up being kind of a. I think, a battle over who was going to be able to reap the economic benefits and maybe like geographically how that was going to be distributed. And so they couldn't come to an agreement. But maybe in the next session, I do see that we're running out of time. So let me just try and hit on one or two more issues if I can. Definitely. And if you don't want to answer this, I fully understand. But what is your everything. view yeah. on Nancy Pelosi, and would you vote for her for Speaker if elected? Um, and, <laughs> and if you want, and if you want to beg out of that, I I totally understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah, it's a hypothetical. I hope I'm in that position <laughs> to be able to uh, to vote on on her for Speaker or not. Um, (laughs) I mean, right, assuming assuming she even
0: runs again, right? I mean, she has a primary that she has to fight off. Yeah, Um, she
1: has multiple progressive challengers, yep. I think they actually had a Facebook Live debate yesterday, which Mm -hmm. I I didn't get a chance to see, but I was reading a bit about it. Look, uh, I think she's she's had a long career, a productive career. I think she's done a lot of good things, as you probably are not surprised by. There are a lot of things that I disagree with her on, Mm -hmm. and at least particularly in this last year, there were a lot of things that I would have handled differently and would have pushed harder on than, you know, than how she handled it. Right. Um, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that.
0: Okay. Right. I mean, I, it's maybe an unfair question because you don't know who else might be running and, yeah. right, and the whole situation. But, you know, there could also be candidates that are specifically running, you know, on that. So I just wanted to ask, tell us about campaign donations. I mean, what's your view on campaign finance and how will you be running your campaign?
1: Yeah, I think financing of elections is import, very important. I think it really strikes at the heart of how we're able to deepen our democracy and um, ensure that we have a democratic system. Right now, you know, obviously uh, with with Citizens United and with Super PACs and dark money, um, it's something that as I began to, as I started running, I noticed immediately. Like, wow, this is a, a crazy beast. I thought I thought teaching was a crazy beast. This is this is just wild. Yeah. Um, the the influence of money and, and just the transactional nature of all interactions. I've, I've not all, but a lot of interactions I've been having with with people in, in that respect. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of interesting programs for public financing, and I and I support that. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's a, a nationwide matching program or full campaign full campaign financing, I think it's really important that there is something done with public financing so that people candidates are not having to spend an inordinate amount of their time basically trying to curry favor from these wealthy donors um, so they have a shot. Uh, really what I've seen through this run is if you're not coming from money and generational wealth or if you don't have a huge rich network, you know how is one supposed to be able to mount a challenge when money plays such an important factor um, in politics. So it's been something that has been a a bit distressing, but uh, it's actually very important to experience it because then you're able to understand what are the changes that that need to be made. Um, In terms of my own contributions, we're not accepting corporate PAC money. Uh, We're not accepting money from fossil fuel lobby or real estate industry military contractors, you know, we're a people-funded campaign, and we're proud about that. We're not beholden to any special interests, and, you know, I'm a real person, I'm a teacher, and I'm here to represent real working people.
0: Great. Amazing. Well, right. And so with that, I think we're running out of time. You know, we could probably go on and on and on. It's really been nice talking to you and getting your views and, and hearing you flesh everything out and just hearing your talk and hearing your thought process. So maybe we can talk again at some other point down the road. We have quite a while between now and June 25th, is it? 23rd. Oh, I'm sorry. June 23rd. Thank you for that. If we had you back again, maybe uh, in a couple of months, would you, uh, would you be willing I'd love it. Great. Our this was pre- a great time. Yeah, really appreciate it. All right. So we, we do have to uh, cut it off here. They're going to be showing a movie pretty soon here. So um, <laughs> so we want to thank, I'll try this, and um Jeba gorgeous No. Yeah, but the ending was good. Gebra, Gebra. Oh, Gebra-Gorgeous. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So I'm getting there. I'm getting there little by little. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, re- really nice talking to you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Have a good one. All right. Be good. All right, so that was uh, a congressional candidate. Uh, He is running against Elliot Engel in the 16th District. The one question we didn't get to ask him is about Jamal Bowman, the other candidate in the race, who I know through the steering committee of NICE. But like we said, we might be able to talk to Andom at another point down the road. Really impressed with Andom. Really, really sounds like a super nice guy. So we're going to be signing off for today. We'll welcome you back next week. We'll be on the air on rocklandworldradio.com at 7 p.m. every Tuesday for New York Update. This has been Jake Jacobs, and we'll see you in the funny business.
1: É charme
0: De gringo E já